Good morning. Uh, if you guys could, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And this is um, a kind of sequel or part two uh, to what Pastor Fudd preached last week. His was put to death, the things that are earthly in you. And this is the opposite, put on, then, you know, the close of the resurrection. Uh, if you're able, go ahead and stand with me. Uh, at Remedy, we read the text. I mean, we stand just to, to signify uh, with our bodies that this is the word of the Lord. It's not just merely the words of man. Our text today says, Put on, then, as God's cho- chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, um, we ask today that you would be merciful and you would be gracious to us. That your words, uh, the words of Christ, would. Um, would attract us to him. It would be uh, an aroma of life to life. It would uh, bring us more to Christ. It would give us another glimpse of you in his face, and we would be made more and more like Jesus from it. We ask that you would be merciful and gracious to us, and you would impart your words to us. Anything that I may say that is not in accordance to truth, I pray that uh, it would not last long on the memories of those who hear me. Father, accompany your word with your spirit and create your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall live. So if we go back to the garden, we're going to flash between the garden, the fall of man, and the crucifixion of Christ, back and forth. If we go back to the the garden, we see something. We see the word of God dwelling richly the peace of God ruling mankind's hearts. And they were clothed by God himself in a sense in which they were naked and unashamed. The serpent then whispers his lies. You will surely not die. You'll be like God. Adam and Eve question God's word in their hearts. The peace of God is dethroned and they strip off God's righteousness in the simple world-altering act of eating the forbidden fruit. They became the keepers of the knowledge of good and evil, and like humanity has ever since done, they did whatever was right in their own eyes, whether it was good or evil alike. In disobedience, they stripped themselves of the clothes of life. They're forbidden from the tree of life, and now they are naked and shamed. Now behold the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect and spotless, being stripped of his clothes, as the soldiers gamble for them. 
beloved Jesus now nailed to the wooden tree, naked and shame for all to see. Naked with a nakedness not of his own and ashamed with a shame that is also not his own. Crowned with the very fruits of our curse. He was crowned with thorns, right? Which is a result of our curse. Being aware, crowned with the very fruits of our curse. So it's flashback. Being aware of their shame and nakedness, Adam and Eve then make for themselves the first exercise of this renewed knowledge. They make clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. In attempt to hide what was now plain to them and plain to the holy God who created them. They covered themselves with clothes made by their own hands. They gave up life with their own hands. Therefore, they could never really get it back with their own hands. Yet they try. Jesus is now pulled down dead and naked off the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He's covered in the man-made God, but by mankind who had now gotten so used to death that it's just as normal as life. Jesus is wrapped in cloth to cover his nakedness, his shame, and to his death. Jesus is put into a tomb, and he's covered up to hide him away from the earth. Now God comes to the garden, to Adam and Eve, and he confronts them. They hide away, wishing for their own tomb to be buried in, for their own chunk of mountains to cover them up from the face of God's holiness. Curses are pronounced against their sinfulness. God comes in wrath and he pronounces curses. But even in the midst of these very curses, he makes the promise to end the very work of Satan that had just taken place. Blessed child of Eve, son of Mary, Jesus. Genesis 3.21 proclaims this, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their fig leaves were removed and they were clothed by the death of another, in this case, likely some animals. Breath enters the Lord Jesus that was on the third day. He calmly removes his grave clothes. He takes the cloth that was covering his face and as John 26 through 7 tells us this, that he takes this cloth and he folded it up in a place by itself. Jesus removed the clothes of death and put on the clothes of glory. He left the newly cut grave, which was in a garden, leaving death behind forevermore. This is what our text is about today. It's about two sets of clothes. The clothes that we make by our own hands, fig leaves, a result of our curse, that can never really clothe us before God and make us right before him. And then the clothes that Jesus himself gives to us freely via his death and his resurrection. Real change sometimes can be as simple as changing your clothes. So Fudd's text last week was about the death of Christ. Our text today is about the resurrection of Christ and the, the application of that uh, to us. I want to point something out that uh, Pastor Fudd has pointed out a couple times in Colossians 2.20, it says this, if you have died with Christ, and it correlates or corresponds to chapter 3, verse 5, which says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, uh, sorry, reading it wrong, put to death then what is earthly in you. So you can literally read chapter 2, verse 20, and chapter 3, verse 5 together in one fluid statement. If you have died with Christ, if you're united to Christ in his death, then 3, 5, then put to death what is earthly in you. Namely, 
Jesus' crucifixion is the power by which we kill our sin. Our text today is about Jesus' resurrection. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, and our text starts with this, put on then, right? And so Jesus' resurrection is the power by which we put on the new man, which is not uh, you know, Chris 2.0 or fill in the blank, your name 2.0, but it is Christ himself. So C.S. Lewis once wrote this, a man who has been to another world does not come back unchanged. And so we might say this, a man who has been in Christ does not come back unchanged. So today what we're going to look at, there's four imperatives, there's four commands. I'm going to combine two of them to make it three. And then there's a kind of benediction or a prayer, a, a, a general statement that if all these three or four commands are obeyed, this is what it looks like. And so we're going to have four total points, the commands and then the universal kind of prayer benediction of Paul. So our first point comes straight from the text. Put on the clothes of Christ made without hands. Put on the clothes of Christ made without hands. And this is verses 12 through 14. Uh, Christ writes through Paul. Put on then as chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on what? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's a universe of truth to be found really in every verse of Scripture. Um, the gems of truth can be mined at every level. You can see them on the surface level or you can go deeper to the core and you can find them there as well. So I want to, let's start with this verb, put on. It is uh, quite literally in the Greek, it's talking about slipping into clothes, putting on clothes. So it's already bringing up this idea of what you're putting on is you're clothing yourself with something, right? Uh, The next thing that Paul then goes on to from this verb, put on, is three titles that he gives to Christians. There's three titles, three names. Chosen ones, holy, beloved. Chosen ones, holy, beloved. The word chosen is from the Greek word where we get election from, right? Predestination election. It's already in the text, right? So what is the church? The church are the ones that God has chosen out of another group, all right? Holiness. Uh, Well, let me point this out, too. These three titles, chosen one, holy, and beloved, are also used all throughout the Old Testament for Israel. And now Paul is applying it directly to the church of Jesus Christ. They form a kind of uh, a chain of images that kind of tell the church's story. We were elected or chosen, called out from the world. For what? To be holy, to remain set apart. That's what holiness is. Because God is holy. And why? Because we are now beloved of God. We are now God's family, God's inheritance, God's riches, God's wealth, the apple of God's eye. Called out by God to remain set apart as his beloved portion. Love and holiness, you might think, are maybe two opposites. Like holiness is this idea of absolute perfection, absolutely being set apart 
from what is not holy. And then love over here, we have these ideas of warm, fuzzy feelings, right? And yet Paul puts them right next to each other. You're holy and you're beloved, meaning you're loved of God. Uh, Mark Dever actually has a, a pretty good quote that I think best explains this relationship between holiness. So let me just read this real quick. I actually didn't write it in my manuscript, but uh, he says this. But his love, talking about God, can be understood maximally only when counterpoised to his holiness. So God's love can only be understood when it's in relation to his holiness. Because his love provides what his holiness requires. Apart from God's holiness, the church need not exist. That is, if God is not set apart, his people need not be set apart. Um, so, it, you know, if, if his holiness is not here, then the church need not exist. But then he goes on and says this, but apart from God's love, the church would not exist. Only God himself can set his people apart. And why would God set them apart unless he loves them? And so holiness and love go directly together. Now, we could dwell just on those three titles, and I think there's enough there that you could just eat on that for the rest of your life, right, and be uh, happy. Uh, But there's more. Paul then turns to the five things that you're to clothe yourself with, all right? And there's five virtues, and now uh, there's five here that correspond to previous lists of five. So in Colossians 3, verse 5, there's a list of five virtues, and then in Colossians 3, verse 8, there's a list of five virtues, although it can be argued in both lists, including mine, that there might be a sixth or even a seventh um, list. But Paul, what he's doing here is he's saying the, the, the vices of anger and sexual immorality of Colossians 3, 5, and 3, 8 are to be put to death, but not just merely put to death. They're then to be replaced by the virtues held up here in our text today. And so what are these virtues? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Uh, a, a Greek dictionary called BDAG defines compassion as this. Compassion is concern about someone else's bad circumstances. So when someone else is going through bad circumstances, uh, you're concerned for them. It wells up inside of you and you're, re- you're concerned. You make it your concern, right? That's compassion. Uh, kindness is seen as a moral goodness and integrity. Uh, humility, Paul defines it in Philippians 2 as counting others more important than yourself. Meekness, according to the Greek dictionary, humble quality. It's the humble quality of consideration for people and not thinking that yourself is more important than others. And then patience, I think, is really well defined in our older English word that we used to use for it, the word long-suffering. Patience is the idea of you suffer long with someone, meaning whatever they do, if they're sinning against you or their personality is in conflict with yours, you're willing to suffer a long time uh, for them. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for patience, this is my favorite, it means literally long nose. Because the Jews, their idea was that a person with a long nose, their anger kind of starts up and you can kind of see it when your nostrils start flaring at someone like a bull. Uh, because a person has long nose, it takes a longer time for anger to reach the nostrils and then flare up. So we should have long noses. And by the way, God is described as having a long nose. He's patient as well. He's long-suffering. So look at verse 13. 
Verse 13 is now uh, describing what it means to put on. It's, there's two participles. There's the word bearing, and then there's the word forgiving. And they go back to the original verb, put on, therefore, right? And so there's kind of two main routes that you can go with participles. Is the bearing and forgiving expressing and demonstrating that we've put on these things that Paul is saying? Or is the forgiving and bearing the way in which we put on, right? I take the former route. I think Paul is saying here that one of the expressions of a person who has clothed himself in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that they then are able to bear long with one another. And when there is sin, they're able then to turn and forgive one another. I think that's what Paul is kind of saying here. And so it kind of reads uh, this way. Any person who is in the resurrection of Christ uh, will forgive and bear with one another, which then begs the question if you're marked by consistent unbearing and unforgiving of those around you, you then have to turn and ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ? Or am I the branch that's not abiding and not receiving the nutrients from the, great, the, the vine? Um, so uh, Douglas Moo gives us some good comments here on the word bearing. He gives kind of two contexts for it in the Bible. Bearing can refer uh, to putting up with difficult circumstances, like persecution even. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.12 uses the same Greek word, and the context is persecution. So being able to bear under persecution. Uh, But another context for it is putting up with difficult people. Uh, Matthew 17.17, Jesus says this to his disciples who had just committed kind of an act that demonstrated that they didn't have a lot of faith in their uh, Lord. He said, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to bear with you? Same word. And then, you know, the answer is he bears with them until death, even death on a cross. And note here, as soon as Paul is done with bearing, what does he turn to? He turns to Jesus' death on the cross, particularly the forgiveness that he gives us from his death. He says this, we're to forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So there's kind of two things here. It could make us think of um, the parable that Jesus tells where he basically summarizes, he who loves little has been forgiven little. He who loves much has been forgiven much. That's essentially Paul's point here is if we really are in Christ united with our sin and we're in his resurrection, clothing ourselves with Christ himself, then Uh, we will see the greatness of the love he had for us and the amount of forgiveness. And then it's easier for us then to bear with one another because when someone does something minute to you and you realize you did something everlasting against God, it's a little bit easier to forgive. It also could be alluding to, right, uh, Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So in essence, we must see how much Jesus has done for us on the cross in order that we might extend this forgiveness that he's brought to us and this bearing that he's brought to us to the church, to the world, and even to those who would call themselves directly our enemies. It's terrifying to see God's true nature and our true nature all meet at the cross. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man quite literally kiss at the cross. 
And the blood of Christ reconciles us to God. And this becomes the only means and foundation for how we are to interact with each other. So let's look at verse 14. Paul's still carrying on this clothing analogy. So verse 13 explained how, uh, what it looks like when we've put on these clothes. Verse 14 adds more clothes to put on. Uh, it's a continuation. Uh, it reads quite literally in the Greek, and upon all these love. All right? Put on is not in the Greek because Paul is directly drawing back to verse 12. So you just supply the verb. But the other thing here that's interesting is um, the word epi. It's just a preposition. Uh, in, in the ESV, it's, it's translated as above all. Above all, put on love, right? And here I just read upon all. Epi normally is translated as upon. And because this is a clothing analogy, it actually makes more sense here. Instead of to say above all, He's not, it's, it, if you read above all, it kind of sounds like, above all these things, love is the best. Put that on. But what Paul's really saying here is, is you've put on the kind of underlayers of Christ's character and now put on the overgarment, which is the love. And this is the thing that binds all those things together in perfect unity. And so um, we have been putting on each of the five virtues, and now Paul wants us to slip on the outer garment that covers and unites the five together. Um, let, me, let me point one thing out about the word bind. It binds us together. This word bind is used in Colossians 2.19. If you go back there, it's used of the muscles that bind together the body of Christ. And so it's more corporal or uh, it's more of a like uh, the body of Christ is bound together. But here Paul is using it kind of individually. He's saying that it's how the individual puts on Christ, right? So uh, let me give some more evidence for why this is a clothing analogy. Uh, G.K. Beale uh, points out something that I think is helpful. There's seven times in the Old Testament, seven times in the Old Testament where the verb put off and put on, it shows up within kind of the same context of each other. And out of those seven times, six times, it's always referring to the high priests who would clothe themselves with clean garments to serve in the Holy of Holies. And then after they would leave the Holy of Holies, they would take off the clean garments, put on, I guess, lesser clean garments because they don't need as much holiness. And so the idea here is, is that Paul is playing the song backwards. As priests, we are taking off our less that we can stand in the Holy of Holies, chosen ones, Holy, beloved, before God himself, in God's presence himself. If you want an example of this, uh, Leviticus 6, 3 through 4, uh, shows, the, um, shows the high priest doing this practice. And so I think that's a pretty good, pretty good evidence. But beyond just the high priest analogy, all right, so we're now, in a sense, you could say we're sharing or participating in Jesus' priestly ministry, um, uh, calling men and women to be reconciled to God. But beyond this, there's another analogy that lies even deeper or further or older than the high priest analogy, uh, likely Genesis 1 through 3. So G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson write a really good book that I would recommend to any, anyone. It's a huge reference book. It's 7,000 pages. You could knock someone out with it. Testament. Commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. 
They go through every New Testament book, and any time they have an allusion or a quote from the Old Testament, they bring it in and they discuss it. And it's a really helpful book. So in this book, um, they actually make the argument that Genesis 1 through 3 is in the background in the mind of Paul when he's writing Colossians, the entire letter, but specifically Colossians 3. And they kind of give some evidence. So first evidence, they, they quote Colossians 3.10. Um, so I'll read it. Colossians 3.10. And, uh, and, have, sorry, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its creator. So Colossians 3.10 and Colossians 1.15 bring up the idea of the image of God. Colossians 3.10 is image of their creator which is a reference to Genesis 1, right? Adam and Eve created in the image of God. Their second piece of evidence, also Colossians 3.10, talks about being renewed in knowledge. And in the, at the heart of the fall of man is a battle over knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Another kind of evidence, uh, Paul's prayer back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, uh, says this, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing or quite literally, multiplying in the knowledge of God. This is an echo of the creation mandate, to be fruitful and to multiply. Um, and then, of course, knowledge of God. We've got the knowledge word again. Another a kind of fourth evidence, the Colossians are also being tempted in a very similar way that the serpent tempts Adam and Eve. Go back to chapter 2, verse 8, uh, where Paul, or sorry, 2, 4, where Paul says, don't be deluded by persuasive arguments, and then verse 8 of chapter 2. Don't be taken captive through, and then he ends with empty deceit, which is quite literally what the serpent did to Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. And so in the background here, there's this idea that what Paul, Paul is referring to is the fig leaves that Adam and Eve had sowed for themselves versus the clothes that were based and rooted in the death of another, provided for them by God. So are we going to continue walking in sin, sowing fig leaves, or are we going to cast that away and turn to the clothes that God has provided in Jesus Christ, and particularly in his death and his resurrection? And so that, that's kind of what's lying behind here in this idea of put on Christ, the resurrection clothes, right? So the question then becomes to us, are we striving to put to death and to bring to life? Are we striving to put to death, put off the fig leaves, and put on uh, humility, meekness, patience, kindness, uh, compassionate hearts, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and then above all of it, right, putting on love? Uh, this is something that we can't do in our own strength, and Paul already gives us kind of the, the principle of how we do this in chapter 3, 1 through 4. Seek the things that are above where Christ himself is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. That's how Paul starts this whole section off. All right, so let's move to our second imperative. Second and third are all in verse 15. And our second point of the sermon is, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And this comes from verse 15. Uh, Christ continues to write through Paul. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So our first command was put on. Now our second and third commands from Paul is, let the peace of God rule, and then that last little phrase, be thankful. Those are actually both commands 
in the Greek. So love leads into personal unity of Christ's character as well. The peace of Christ is supposed to rule in our hearts. This can mean umpire, like officiate, like a game. It can also mean uh, a more stronger term, control. The peace of God is supposed to control. Or another way of saying this is like peace steers the ship. Peace calls the game. Peace helps you sort through your choices and prioritize the ones that are godly versus the ones that are Satan's lies. What exactly is the peace of Christ? The word peace only shows up three times in all of Colossians. So one is in our text here. The first one is in one of the very first verses where Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. The second time is in the hymn that we quote every single Sunday, the Christ hymn, in which it says this in verse 20 of chapter 1. To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what is the peace of Christ? The peace of Christ is a product of the bloody cross of Christ. So the peace of Christ is firstly seen and imagined by Paul as reconciliation between you and God. So it's this, this vertical idea, right? It's reconciliation between you and God. Um, Ephesians, well, let me, before I get a, ahead of myself, look also at this. Uh, to which indeed you were called in one body. All right, so if it's reconciliation between me and God, is there any other form of reconciliation that's found in the peace of Christ? Well, Paul hints at it in that phrase. To which indeed you were called to one body. So you're reconciled to God, but how are you reconciled to God? By being called into one body. Uh, Ephesians 2, Ephesians is kind of the sister letter of Colossians, which means it just shares a lot of themes. It's written around the same time, and it's written obviously by the same person. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 uh, comments on this horizontal piece, uh, this reconciliation. For he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who, made, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Jesus breaks down, quite literally in his death, the wall of hostility between the Jews and the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the peace of Christ ought to lead us all of us, right, to be one with one another. So we can literally say this. In the death of Christ, not only has he provided reconciliation to God, but all the reconciliation that we can possibly have with one another is also found in the death and resurrection of Christ and nowhere else. So we can think through some divisions that people put up. Ethnicity, race, age, weight, politics, any other division, right? Any other thing that you can put up that makes a person more of an individual than you are, right? More different than you are. Anything that you can think of that has been made an end of in terms of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. So we could say this. Do you like different movies than me? Do you vote for different presidents than me? Are you richer or poorer than me? Are you heavier or older or younger than me? Are you smarter or, you know, maybe dumber than me? Are you the, a unique individual different from me? Christ has reconciled you and I 
by his death and resurrection. It's that simple. And sometimes we think it's not that simple, but here Paul is very clearly stating it is that simple. He seems to think and teach that Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is enough to unite any two people on earth in a perfect bond of unity. Being a member of Christ's body means we say to one another, I will put myself to death. You will put yourself to death. I will put on Christ. You will put on Christ. We bear with one another when we fail at doing that. We forgive one another when we fail at doing that, right? Colossians 3.11 says this, Here then, free, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ is all and in all when it comes to the church. So peace with God, peace with others, and then also a commission to strive to have peace with those around us. Although there's no lasting partnership with those who are outside of Christ, we should still strive for peace. Um, a quick word, again, just commenting on uh, this, this phrase, to which indeed you were called uh, into one body. We are all kind of wearing the same set of clothes that Christ has given to us. Our text is now shifting from individual putting on Christ now to the corporate body. Uh, Doug, Doug Moo has a good quote here. The gospel is inescapably individual in its focus. Each of us on our own is called by God and responds in faith on our own. Yet at the same time, the gospel is inescapably corporate. We are called along with other people with whom we make up one body. So a question then becomes when this one body is thrown out by, uh, by Paul. Does he have the universal church? This is all believers around the world who are in Christ at all times of history. Does he, does he have the universal church in mind? Or does he have a local church in mind? The Christ hymn of Colossians 1 fits well with the universal church. Um, but this context here of believers bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, and later on teaching, admonishing, and singing with one another seems to indicate a local church. So let me put it this way. You do not do one another's with the universal invisible church physically. You can't because you're not in each other's presence necessarily. And so is Paul talking about the local church here? Uh, Moo says this, the oneness, he reconciles the two, the oneness or unity of the universal church comes to expression in local communities of believers. And so I wanted to take time to make this a point. It's in the text, but I wanted to make this a point because more than ever today, we are tempted and fed the lies that you can essentially participate in the church by yourself, individually, on your own, away from people. We could throw... Uh, streaming, internet, globalization, all the different reasons we could come up with. Um, even, right, the pandemic is now tempting us to, to see the benefits of streaming technology and all those things. But I just want to be clear that the Bible teaches a person's belonging to the universal church is best demonstrated and expressed in that person's participation in a local church. A local body. Mark Dever says it's stronger. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify this because it, you'll be like, whoa. Mark Dever says it a little bit stronger in a book called What is a Healthy Church? He said, if you are not a member of the church, he's talking about a local church. Now, 
Again, local church, we can get uh, a wrong picture, but you're meeting with a, a body of believers over the Word of God, and you're celebrating baptism in the Lord's Supper with one another, and you're committed to all the one another's, right? So Dever says this, if you are not a member or a regular participant of the local church you regularly attend, you may well be going to hell. Strong statement. What does he mean? If we are not actively participating in the local body of Christ, meaning bearing with one another, forgiving with one another, in essence, obeying the commands of Christ toward one another, you may well be not in Christ. Because part of putting on Christ's resurrection is doing these one another's. And so the one another's demonstrate that we are united to Christ. So let me be clear. I'm not saying the church saves you. Going to church saves you. Christ saves you, right? But what does Christ do? Christ saves you into a church, a local body, so that you then can put on Christ toward one another. So I just want to, I want you to see that, that it's extremely important to gather together as the body of Christ. It's what demonstrates best um, our participation in Jesus. Um, Paul ends verse 5 with a very simple command that is so hard to do. Be thankful. Um, Being thankful is an important characteristic of us who are in Jesus. And I want you to see that this is not just some throwaway. It's sprinkled throughout the entirety of our passage, like uh, fine spices and seasonings over a savory fruit carrot, right? Because we, we like meat. Um, the word thankful comes from the Greek root uh, charis or charis, depending on your pronunciation. Um, <laughs> it means grace. And uh, let me point out where this shows up in our passage. There's two places in verse 13, forgiving and forgiven. It's the word charizomai, which is just the verb form of grace. You're gracing people. You're forgiving people. All right, so that's verse 13. Um, In verse 15, the word thankful comes up. This is the word eucharist. It's got charis in it again. Eucharist is sometimes what we call the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, right, uh, it's where the grace of God meets and we give thanks to God for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So in verse 15, grace is found. In verse 16, it's used again in the word thankfulness which could just be as easily translated as, uh, instead of with thankfulness in your hearts, it could be with grace in your hearts. Finally, it's found again in verse 17. Eucharist is used again. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so this is maybe a way to understand this connection between grace and thanksgiving, all coming from the same Greek root. Thanksgiving is a demonstration that you've received grace. When the grace of God fills our hearts, it'll, it enables us and strengthens us to be thankful for the things around us. So how can you tell that a person has grace in their hearts? They're thankful for the things that are around them, for the people that are around them. Um, and that's hard, right? So we could, we could say, you know, idealism sometimes is the enemy of thanksgiving, of thankfulness. If the church could just be bigger, if we could just have more members or more money or If my wife or my husband could just be fill-in-the-blank, or if I could just have a spouse of any kind, or if I could just be a bit taller or a bit smaller, or if I would have grown up here, or if I would have had these kinds of parents, or if I would have a better job, or 
if fill in the blank. It's not a long or it's not a, a long stretch to say once we start down the what if train, we can quickly fall into bitterness and complaint and quite literally the destruction of real people in your life. Real people, not the what if people, but the real people. Uh, so we want perfection. We have dreams of perfection. What does Paul say? He says, be thankful. And if you want perfection, he's seated at the right hand of God. Put your mind on these things, heavenly things. Seek the things that are above. Think about the things that are above. Uh, hear Christ through Paul. He says to us, be thankful. So let's look at verse 16, our next command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christ writes through Paul, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is a a harder verse to translate uh, because it it looks pretty straightforward, um, but this word singing um, is interesting. So I'll just put it this way. Let me read a sister text to you, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, and you'll kind of see what up. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the confusing thing in Colossians is the word teaching and admonishing is actually applied to the psalms, the hymns, and the spiritual songs. And then the singing comes after it, singing with thanksgiving to God. Uh, but in our text, right, it looks like singing applies to the hymns and the psalms and the things. Uh, so Paul is quite literally saying here, you are to teach and admonish one another in hymns, songs, or sorry, hymns, psalms, spiritual songs. Those are the things that we're to teach and admonish each other with. We see it in Ephesians 5. He says, address each other with those things. Now, on top of that, we're to sing them. But what what does Paul mean here by addressing each other with songs, right? Do we just sing our worship songs, and then afterwards, we take a line out of the worship song, and we throw it in conversation with one another, and we address each other with it, and we say, like that song, right? Um, He's a good, good father, right? Uh, That could be it, but that, that seems a little awkward to me depending on what song I guess you're addressing each other with. Um, So let me point out two things here. The word psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs only shows up in one other place, which is in Ephesians, but it only shows up in the Old Testament twice, in the Greek Old Testament, the translation of the Old Testament to Greek. It shows up in the superscriptions of Psalm 67 and Psalm 76. So G.K. Beale writes this. In both of those psalms, the three words are placed directly next to one another without a conjunctive, without an article, just like Colossians 3.16. They are part of the superscriptions. The three words in Colossians are plural since the allusion is to both Psalms 67 and 76 as representing the whole corpus of the psalms. So the way that G.K. Beale reads this is, Yes, it's songs that incorporate the truth of God that we sing to one another. And yes, we admonish and teach each other with that truth as well. But he's also got in mind, quite literally, the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 67 
and 76, that we are to address one another. We are to teach and admonish one another from the book of Psalms, um, which is, is, is kind of cool. Another thing that I think is interesting is we keep calling the Christ hymn, right? We keep referring to the Christ hymn, 1, 15 through 20. Paul's already been modeling what he's now commanding. In chapter 1, 15 through 20, he gives this Christ hymn. We call it a Christ hymn because it has some weird words that don't usually show up elsewhere in Pauline letters. So what people think is that Paul's taking a tradition of the church, an early writing of the church, and he's putting it here, right? Or maybe Paul wrote the tradition and it became a tradition of church. It doesn't matter. We can argue over that. But the Christ hymn that Paul put up in chapter 1, he's quite literally doing it now. He's admonishing and he's teaching and he's addressing us with this, this tradition of who Jesus is. And now he's extending it out and he's saying, you go do the same with one another. And so uh, to, to, to make this clear, let the Bible dwell in your hearts richly. Teach and admonish one another with the Bible and sing the Bible with thanksgiving back to God for us. And then he's also quoting Psalms because he's also saying there um, that that's a good place to admonish and teach each other from as well. So there's our commands, the four commands. Now let's, um, let's conclude with his kind of benediction, his prayer, his general teaching here from verse 17. It kind of goes back to 12 through 16 and just summarizes it all in one kind of uh, uh, prayer. He says this, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So to those who have put Christ on, to those who have let peace, the peace of Christ, rule in their hearts, to those who have now let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, Paul is now giving a universal statement that our lives should look like. Whatever we do in word or deed, let us do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we have the glorious end that Jesus' death and resurrection is set about. The end is the worship of God the Father through Jesus, in every single thing we do or say. The phrase, in the name of the Lord, uh, is a, uh, a common phrase used all throughout the Old Testament, over 32 times, just that phrase alone. And then there's variations of it that go beyond the 32 times. In the name of the Lord. So it's this Jewish formula used of Yahweh over and over and over again. And note here that Paul, instead of Uh, He replaces God in the formula with Jesus. In the name of the Lord, every Jew's thinking, we're talking about Yahweh here, and then he says, Jesus. Jesus is proclaimed as God, revealer of grace and truth, the only name on earth by which any can be saved. He brings us safely home to God that we might worship him in thanksgiving, with thanksgiving in our hearts. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily He is the image of the invisible God. So in conclusion, I want to speak to two kinds of people. People who are in Christ and perhaps people who are not in Christ. Um, First, to you who are not in Christ. There is no other name that you can be saved by. There is no other place that will bring you safely before God. The wages of sin is death. 
and the wrath of God abides on those who are outside of Christ. Your fig leaves will not present you before God in any manner that is good. Your best and worst works make no difference in recommendation before the most holy creator. There has never truly been a moment when outside of Christ we have loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, or loved our neighbor as ourself. Those who are outside of Christ, the law hangs around our neck as a millstone, and we're plunged into the sea of sinfulness, sinking into its depths one step further towards death. But there is one who we've been talking about this whole time, Christ. Behold a man who never took a breath, where he failed to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and never failed in a split second of any time in his life to love his neighbor perfectly as himself. Behold him on the cross with the law around his neck, dying as a curse of the law, for cursed is everyone who hangs on the wages. Behold the keeper of the law and the sinless one receiving the wages of sin, which is death. He died your death on that cross. And he didn't stay dead. He raised from the grave on the third day and offers love, peace, and life to anyone who comes to him. So if you're without Christ, the command is clear. Believe, trust, rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, if you have questions about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus, find one of the pastors here, find me after the service, or find the friend you came with and talk to them about uh, Jesus. So finally, to those of us who are in Christ, who are striving to put to death and to put on, I want to recommend just some, some practical ways that we can do these things. This is just, uh, uh, we, we just finished with this idea of using the Bible, right? Letting the Bible dwell richly in us and admonishing each other in the Bible. This is just a recommendation if you have time on Whitney. And it's literally what it, it, it sells itself as it is. It's about praying the Bible. And he goes through some different ways in which we can incorporate Scripture um, into uh, prayer. And then another thing would be if you want to go and try to learn how to sing the Psalms, there's a lot of good like phone apps that have taken Psalms and have put in them to melody. And so it's a way of memorizing the Psalms uh, and teaching. One particular one is called Sing Psalms. It literally just says, Sing Psalms. And it has all the Psalms kind of uh, metered out and put to melody. So we should learn to sing, right, God's word to one another. So let me end with Second Chronicles 38.30. Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord, the priests, with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. As the Levites sang to God the Psalms of David, we the priests under the priesthood of Christ ought to also sing back God's truth to himself which is what we're now going to do. So pray with me, and then we will worship in song. Father, uh, I pray that you would transform us to be more like Jesus. Give us a glimpse of him today, and allow us as we sing together as a congregation, as one body, to just lift up this truth of who you are and who you've declared us to be, to just sing this with thanksgiving in our hearts. And as we go Monday through Saturday, out from church, that whatever we do, um, 
in word or deed that we would do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.